Good evening, I'm Fiona Mountford and it's my very great pleasure to welcome you all here for the first in the Lyric's new strand of Studio Talks. I shall be hosting a year-long programme of events with one talk inspired by each main house production. And we start, of course, with the current outstanding production of A Doll's House. Tanika Gupta has ingeniously adapted the Ibsen original, relocating it to colonial India and giving us Nehru, Ibsen's Nora, who is an Indian woman married to Tom, a British bureaucrat. And this gives rise to tonight's topic under discussion, is marriage a form of colonialism? Now we've got a cracking panel here to consider this question. Rachel O'Riordan is the artistic director of the vibrantly relaunched Lyric Hammersmith and the director of this very fine production of A Doll's House. Prior to her arrival here in London, she was the artistic director of the Sherman Theatre in Cardiff. Tanika Gupta wrote this adaptation of A Doll's House and is currently one of the country's leading playwrights, known for both her original work and her many adaptations, which include the highly praised re-spinning of the Harold Brighouse classic, Hobson's Choice. Gaminda K. Bambra is Professor of Postcolonial and Decolonial Studies in the School of Global Studies at the University of Sussex, and previously she was Professor of Sociology at the University of Warwick. Anita Arnand is a political journalist well known for her extensive work on television and radio. She's currently the presenter of Any Answers on Radio 4. She is also the critically acclaimed author of three books with an Indian focus, including The Patient Assassin and Sophia, Princess, Suffragette and Revolutionary. It's a real pleasure to have the four of you with us tonight. Welcome. I'm going to chat to Rachel, Tanika, Gaminda and Anita for 30 minutes or so and after that we're going to open the floor to audience questions. So do please have a think about anything you might like to ask. Now just before we start, perhaps we might have a show of hands. Who has seen this production already? Ah, splendid. Okay, great. And who has tickets to see it later on in the run or tonight perhaps? Ah, lovely. Oh, great. <laughs> Thank you. That's useful to know. We'll try not to tell you who done it. <laughs> Just to let you know, we're recording tonight for a potential future podcast. So there will be microphones for when we ask open the floor to audience questions. Tanika, I must start with you. What gave you the inspiration, the impetus for this wonderful adaptation? relocating Ibsen's European classic to colonial India? Um, well, it's always that thing when you kind of go, I'm not sure when I first got the idea, uh, but I think mainly because I loved, I loved the play right from the beginning. Uh, Ibsen has done a lot in India, actually, and I think I did see A Doll's House in Calcutta when I was very young in Bengali and didn't really understand very much of it, I have to say, but I, I do remember w watching it. Uh, there's a joke in India that um, Ibsen is actually Indian <laughs> because it's Ib-Sen. <laughs> but um, I, I, I did, I have to admit, I did develop it originally for Radio 4 and I wrote it as a Radio 4 play, actually Radio 3 play, um, with Indira Varma and Toby Stevens back in 2013. And uh, it was actually Indira, who, I mean, we won an, an award for it, so I always knew it worked. Um, and it was Indira who told me you must keep, you must try and get it on as a play. And then eventually I met the wonderful Rachel. And in fact, what was interesting was that Rachel read it and went, I think you can go further with this. So it's actually not the radio play. It's, it's much, um, 
you know, it, it goes on a lot more. And I think that that for me, it's that thing of always, because um, my family are from Calcutta and because I used to go back for de-anglicisation process <laughs> on a regular basis, um, it just felt very natural to put it there because I knew it so well. Um, and it's, it, is, it was the heart of the British Empire. Sure. Rachel, why did you choose this particular play to launch your tenure here at the Lyric? You, you obviously wanted to start with a big statement. Yes, I did. I think it's um, when you are lucky enough to get a job like this, there, um, there is always a, a look, there's a curiosity in, about what you're going to do first because people look out for that as a way of, I suppose, indicating what you believe in and what your values are and the kind of direction of travel you want the theatre to go on. And I'd long been an admirer of Tanika's work. I'm Irish. Um, I was very interested in Tanika's work about tension between between race, and I and I was always I'd never met Tanika, but I'd read and seen her work. So, also, I wanted a program work that fitted into and responded positively to a proscenium match theatre because we're lucky here we have a beautiful Frank Matcham main house so there was lots of reasons I met Tanika and said basically have you got anything that you're working on and she said yes as she's just said I was also very aware that in this area of London there is a really big Indian community and I felt it was really important as a new artistic director to reach out to that community not in a kind of gentle passive way but to be very overt and say this is for you this, I'm trying to, I am, as an artistic director, I am aware and cognizant of your presence and I respect it and I want you to think of this theatre as your home. So I was very much interested in, as soon as Tanika said, I've, I've got this thing, do you want to read it? It's currently a radio play. I went, yes. Very quickly I said, I want to do it. It was a very swift turnaround, wasn't it? We didn't, we I didn't... think it was 24 hours. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> I was a bit shocked. Yeah. I, I was just, I had this very strong instinct that it was right. It was yeah. classic and yet it was modern. It spoke, I think it speaks to our times in a, in a not, uh, and it's not a play about Brexit, but it really speaks to, um, it speaks to Britain and a British mindset at a time when that is at play and in flux. Yeah. And it's a classic which looks gorgeous in a proscenium arch stage, but I wouldn't have been interested in doing a straightforward Ibsen set in Norway. That's not what the lyrics are about. So it just chimed and then we, and we got on, which is really important. <laughs> <laughs> what struck me so forcefully, first of all, I read the play and then, and then watching it, is how Nero, Ibsen's Nora, as those of you who've seen it know, is caught in this double bind of inferiority because of her sex and then her race. We might indeed say that Nero has been colonised twice over. And Anita and Gaminda, I wondered what you made of that. Do you want to go first, Prof? (laughs) (laughs) Well, I mean, I think, you know, because one of the ways in which this session was presented was, is marriage a form of colonialism, as you sort of said. And I think that one of the things that we perhaps need to ask ourselves in relation to that is, well, if we understand marriage not just as between different sexes, but same sexes, then would the analogy and even the attempt to make the analogy still work? And I think it wouldn't work because, in a sense, one requires some degree of difference or perceived difference. And so then I was thinking, well, perhaps if we thought about it more in terms of patriarchy, because patriarchy is a system within which marriage is embedded and gives it a particular sort of form, then we could ask, is patriarchy similar to colonialism or is patriarchy like colonialism? And then we would also need to know what colonialism was. 
And what is colonialism? Well, I feel you being long? the professor <laughs> of it are how the person to enlighten so, I mean, I did want to sort of say, because the play, I, I think, is, is incredible. And the, the time in which it's set is incredibly sort of interesting if we're thinking about the British in India. And one of the things that I think it's important to know to really get a sense of the different dynamics that are uh, going on within the play is the fact that the British have been in India for at least 100 years by the time the play during the time that the play is set. And they go there first as part of the East India Company, so they're traders. But by the late 1770s, they've taken over tax collecting authority from the local rulers. And that's really significant because Tom is a tax collector. And so to understand who the tax collectors were in India and the particular sort of role that they have, it wasn't like we might imagine here, you pay your taxes and you get something for it, roads, street lights, hospitals, education, and so on. But tax collecting by the British in India expropriated all the money that was taken to Britain. So none of it remained in India. So in the late 1770s, there's one of the great famines of the period in which one in three of the population of Bengal are killed as a consequence of the failure of the British to provide famine relief because all the money has to be taken as profit. And at the time that the play is set, there's been another great famine across sort of central India, which has killed over 5.5 million people. So in the context of thinking about Das, who's the Indian male character who works within the tax office, he would be, and, and is sort of the anti figure in a way because he's the one who's extorting money and, and so on. He would have been aware of the systematic extortation of money by the British from the Indian populations leading to the death of 5.5 million people in that area over the years of the 1870s within India. So I think in that sense then to ask the question is marriage like colonialism? puts it in a very different sort of light, which is why I would want to say, is patriarchy like colonialism? Anita, what would you say to that? Um, I, I, and I completely get what you're saying. I mean, if, if marriage is colonialism, get a divorce. Uh, <laughs> because that is a very unhealthy relationship. I mean, the whole idea of colonialism and that leeching away of not just material goods, but um, a sense of self, a sense of identity, a sense of belonging in one's own country in one's own body, um, those things are part of an abusive relationship. So that resonated with me. And also, you know, I mean, I, I went on those de-anglicization trips to <laughs> India also. I had an aunt who was a, a lot older than my mother who said, look, I'm going to tell you a thing and you must live this way for the whole of your life. First of all, she said, when you get married, I'm going to have to find you an idiot. And I said, why? She goes, because you're quite clever. If I find you someone clever, it's going to be unbearable. So since you're the clever one, I'll have to find you an idiot. And it's not the way we do things. Your father's educated you too much. So that was, it, and that, you know, it, although that was quite funny, but it was almost identical, I now realize, to the attitude of the British in India, where they did educate Indians, where they allowed them to go to London colleges to stay at the YMCA, not a stone's throw away from Tottenham Court Road, where they were allowed to study at inns of courts, but they were never able to progress beyond a certain point. Don't be too clever. And that was kind of the message of an old, old Indian way of constructing a marriage and a relationship. She also had another saying, uh, which is, ik chup hazar suk, which means keep quiet, one time you will have a thousand blessings in your life. 
which also is the way that colonialism managed to hold on for as long as it did in India. It held on because it's an extraordinary thing. The ICS, the Indian Civil Service, never more than 1,200 people, managed to reign with such control and, I mean, it's just, I mean, it's extraordinary how, how well this machine worked, but managed to convince a people that if you just shut up and get on, it will be fine. And that worked and worked and worked until it didn't, and then the divorce was incredibly messy. 1,200, never more than 1,200 in the ICS. And they were also a really interesting cadre of people. Um, so, so one of the characters in, in, in the book that you very kindly mentioned, The Patient Assassin, and this may resonate with you from Ireland, but a lot of Irish people went over to oppress Indians, which is an extraordinary thing to think. Um, these are people, including one of the main... I, I sort of want to say characters, but he's a real person. He existed. Um, the former lieutenant governor of Punjab was an Irish Catholic from Tipperary who grew up in a place where all his neighbours were struggling with the back end of the potato famine, where all the ballads were about throwing off the shackles of the British. And yet, as a, as a man who had no lineage and no money of his own, the way he could make his name was to be one of this 1,200 of the ICS. And when he goes to India, he forgets any kind of these resonances that he's grown up with, and he um, is one of the most oppressive people that has governed for the British in India. What fascinated me, and I'm sure those of you who've seen it will have picked up on this, I, I love but also squirmed at the way Tom's language to his wife drips with attitudes of marital and racial condescension. He calls her, for example, my little Indian skylark and says, you are a very pretty but expensive pet. Now, is this all four of you, I wonder, is this, well, Tanika, you might know the answer as you wrote this, but is this the exoticizing language of a very specific time and place? Or is there a hint of colonial attitude in the language of all, in the language of all relationships at all times? All relationships, yeah. what, between men and women, Any, yeah. or women well, and women, or... I think we're maybe talking about the patriarchs and maybe we're talking about men and women, but not just in 1879 Calcutta in all relationships. Oh, gosh, that's, uh, that's too big for me. I mean, I think that in terms of the actual play, um, what's interesting is a lot, lot of times when people are watching the play, they'll turn to me and they'll go, that's a great line. <laughs> and I'll go, that's bloody Ibsen. That wasn't great. <laughs> <laughs> um, so it's, I mean, he I mean, in the Ibsen, in the original, it is my, my, my squirrel, my skylark. Yes. Yeah. It's all there. And basically I was trying to find a way of, um, a way of making her, you know, like an in, my Indian princess is exactly yeah. the same thing. But I think what's always fascinating with these things is the minute you change the relationship, so it's between a, a colonial white man and an Indian woman, even though there were many happy marriages around that time between uh, the, the races, it becomes something different. It's almost like it's the, it's the same language, but it's a completely different uh, effect and as to whether it, we all, I mean, we all call each other silly names, don't we? But I mean, I'm not sure that that's necessarily... It just the time and the yeah. place makes yes. it so yes. loaded, doesn't yes, it? Yes, it does make it very loaded. And, yeah. and it, I mean, it, and I was interested in the exoticization. I mean, it, there is that thing about sometimes the way that uh, 
black sexuality is viewed in this country even now um, is very um, it's very disturbing I think and particularly with women I mean I have been every time I've worn a sari there's always been a comment on I don't know I shouldn't swear how how do you have sex in a sari is often what I get asked people ask you that yeah yeah but they don't say they do yeah exactly just hoik it up (laughs) Well, they, they don't say it in quite so polite terms, but I'm, what I'm saying is that there is this kind of weird kind of... Um, is that Anita? It's Anita. It's Rani Anita. in the house, Rani. everyone, yeah. <laughs> it would be. Hiding under your hat. <laughs> <laughs> what do you have to think about this language? What did, did anything strike you in particular about the language? Or Well, I think it's difficult to think about it outside of thinking about it in terms of structures, because to the extent that Nehru is part of the local bourgeoisie and so has a distance from the local Indian population otherwise and would also have been sort of distanced from the suffering that they would have gone through in relation to the famines and so on. Because remember, Tom isn't just a bureaucrat, he's a tax collector. And that's quite an explicit role of taking resources and wealth and removing them from the country such that the population starves. So in the 1770s, for example, when the first famine happened, one in three of the population were killed as a consequence of starvation. This is according to the reports of uh, Governor General Hastings himself. So the British administrator writes back to Britain saying that 10 million people had been killed because all the grain had been sold, no grain had been allowed to be kept as, as reserves, Profit was the prime motive. And so the fact that people died didn't really matter. And this sets the pattern of British rule in Ireland, where you have the famine where a million people are killed in the mid-19th century, and then again uh, in the late 19th century, and then again in the mid-20th century in 1943. So I think to sort of... For me, the focus was really thinking about how those layers of different forms of oppressive relationships perhaps intersect with each other. So there's the patriarchal relationship, but I don't think that can be taken outside of the fact that the British are in India as an occupying force, and so for a local Indian woman to have a relationship with a member of an occupying force, it's never going to be on the basis of any sort of equality. Now let's just do a quick survey, five of us here. I'm not married. Rachel, I believe... You're not, Anita? I think you are. Tanika Gaminda? I've been married for 150 years. Well done, you. 150 years. Very good. So a a two-part question then. A two-part question for the married members of the panel. Are you colonised? Oh, bloody and hell, are no. your spouses? No. no. Are I your mean, spouses? No, 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 okay. no. That, that's why I started off saying that if you're... See, I had a problem with the question uh, in that it, in its contemporary asking, it's almost an affront and it shouldn't make sense. It has historically been true. There's no mm. doubt about that. In, in, on a legal basis in this country until women fought and fought and fought, uh, you know, most... Obviously, they didn't have a voice and they didn't have a, a vote. Uh, they were expected to pay taxes, but had no no say in where those taxes went. That is that is different now. That has changed. There's no sense in the 21st century in which marriage. I don't. Well, I'm just saying, if you if you are in that kind of relationship, that's a toxic relationship. To me, marriage does not come in, implicit with that as as a, a, a load. Historically, that has been different. Historically, the very act of being married is to become the chattel of a man. It has been. I mean, that's the way the law was framed. That's how women's rights were framed. But it is thanks to the 
blood, sweat and tears of women, that that has changed and the law has changed. So if you are still in that kind of, of situation, get out. Get out quickly. That's certainly well, not how yeah, I see my, I mean, I my relationship. That, well, I think that you know, I think that in in many cases, marriage is, marriage still is quite oppressive, isn't it? I mean, there's no doubt about it. But in terms of when you're asking us personally, it's quite difficult because you're yeah. basically talking to four feminists in the room. Yeah, right? no, there's sure. no way that we would. But no. I mean, my yeah. my story is that I actually proposed to my husband, and he rejected me on the basis <laughs> he actually said, um, "I'm sorry, I can't marry you because marriage is a patriarchal institution <laughs> based on the subjugation." of women and I said to him if you don't marry me my dad's going to kill us both so. <laughs> that's brilliant that is, that's <laughs> my bet so, Ibsen wishes he'd written yeah. that line. but, but I'm, I'm, inter I'm interested in that it was sort of almost a throwaway remark you said you know actually of course you know the institution of marriage it can be well it is though isn't but it tell I me mean, why why, why ultimately is it? it's that thing of like you know still to this day you see women getting married and changing their names so it's yeah. that still that thing where you that, become so yeah. Yeah. you become the property yeah. of the man or, and the whole thing about giving away giving away the, the bride yeah, I and, and there are still I mean uh, some uh, Yes, yeah. exactly. I mean, I a friend of mine was just saying the other day that a lot of her friends, she's slightly older than me, a lot of her friends who were equally educated with their husbands or partners, I'm talking about straight couples here, yeah. uh, they got married, they had children, and somehow or other the, the woman didn't quite do as well yeah, in her I, career. I feel that's very common amongst yeah, my yeah. married but peers. That, that, yes, but I'm 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 rather hopeful that's changing. I think well I I, I think it is. I hope yeah. it is. I, I mean, think it's it certainly, I think there's yeah. any relationship, be it colonization or marriage or any any relationship that distorts the this the identity of one of the parties mm. is is a form of, of abuse or some sort of distortion. So I'm interested in your mentioning of the Irish behavior because as you rightly say you know millions of people died in the famine slash genocide uh, in Ireland and I feel that, that the colonization of Ireland say distorted something in that in in my country's psyche and and therefore in a person too anything that is not equal a relationship has to be equal for it to work be it a marriage or anything else colonization in its absolute fundamental nature is not an equal thing and I said this in rehearsals actually to one of the actors who, who isn't here I mean it was Elliot who played Tom brilliant 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 Elliot and I was talking about Tom's nature having been distorted by being a by being a colonizer by being in this role himself and so far from it being an easy uh, answer that he is just a brute or whatever, we were going a very different way with this character. And, and you, if you've seen it, you will see, I hope, and if, that Elliot has made a, an extraordinary job of doing so. But there's a, there's a piece in Merchant of Venice, there's a speech in Merchant of Venice, which I, will, which I spoke to Elliot about, and I will paraphrase it badly again, in which Shylock talks about having been abused in the, um, in the Rialto. He says, yesterday you spat upon my Jewish gabardine and called me dog and so on and so on. And now you're coming to ask me for a favour. He's speaking to Bassanio and Antonio about the pound of flesh, about the, the money loan. And he says, well, you call me dog, so if I be dog, best beware my fangs. And I think that really is at the core of the colonizer-colonized relationship. If you if you go into a relationship with somebody and you treat them in such a way as you almost brutalize that person, then they will be a brute. Mm -hmm. That is what you have made. And I think, and that is not, of course, what's happening in Doll's House. It's a much more complex and delicate and beautiful 
sort of play than that. But I think what happens at the end, in, I'm oversimplifying for the reasons of speed, but Nira re realizes that her, her nature, not just an Indian, not just as a woman, but her very self, her very nature has been distorted or hasn't been allowed to be. So, so she has to go because so, she has to find that. She has to find out who she is in, in sort of broad terms. And so in that sense, her relationship with Tom has become a form of colonization because she herself has not been herself. Yeah. I mean, there's, there's something about the brutalization which, which rings true. I mean, again, I, I, I'd still say, you know, the, the, the giving away, the veil, the bride, these are throwbacks of history and the past. And it's all, I mean, all the women I know who, who do even now go through, the, it's a form of fancy dress. Yeah. It's a photo opportunity and it means nothing deeper than that. So, you know, if you can, if you want to extrapolate, these are all historical remnants that go back. But again, I would say to me and to most of the young women I know, marriage is a is a coming together of two people who really like each other and want to do this thing together. It's, it's nothing, it's, there's no, no colonization about that. So marriage in itself is not a toxic concept. The attitudes of those people who go into that marriage can be toxic. And I, I mean, the, the, the things that I've written are very much on the cusp of the Indian English ex experience, or that, that Raj experience. So in the one, the first, the first book I wrote was about three princesses, they were Indian princesses who were born and brought up in this country. Uh, their father was a Maharaja and a pet of Queen Victoria. And they grew up and they had their coming out at Buckingham Palace. And uh, the woman who I wrote about, Sophia, was just a virago. Um, she started off life quite pointlessly. You know, she was a Kardashian of her day, <laughs> utterly vacuous and pointless. Uh, and then she suddenly goes, she goes to India and she sees the fallout of famine and she sees poverty and she sees all that's this been taken. It's the end of the 19th century. It is the end of the 19th century, exactly. And she goes and she sees all that and she comes back with this, this, this voice ringing in her ears, which is from the Indian nationalists, which is Avaaz, give us a voice, give us a voice, give us a voice. And she comes back to England and she hears that same thing coming out of the mouths of the suffragettes. And so she signs up, mind, body, spirit, soul, and she becomes the, a leading suffragette, leading the Black Friday march with Emmeline Pankhurst, sacrificing everything for this cause. Now, despite the fact that she's this virago woman, she, no one will marry her because she is brown. She's too brown for a white man, but she's also too white for a brown man. So she falls through this crack right there and then of cruelty, where a woman who has all this love to give and so much talent and is maternal but can never have children, all of these things, she's an utter victim of patriarchy crushing and colonialism. She is utterly crushed by it. But then the, the latest book I've written is about a man who is crushed by colonialism, like the Irish example, should know better. He is the whipped dog. He is the orphan whose, whose family is wiped out because of the presence of the British. They bring plague on their ships, and they, this kills his parents. He's brought up in an orphanage. He goes to fight in the First World War for this cause for the British who don't give a damn about him, and he comes back with nothing, and he gets angrier and angrier, and he's in this place, Jellyoanabag, this garden where this terrible massacre takes place, and he swears that the rest of his life is going to be devoted to revenge. And yet, he uses women like a bastard. You know, he, will, he goes to America, he falls in love with a Mexican woman because Indian men could not uh, mate with white-skinned women. That was miscegenation, that wasn't 
allowed or, or, or acceptable. But they could fall in love with Mexicans. Mexicans own property. Lots of Indian men married, met and married Mexican women. And he has this one chance to be happy, to be with this woman who can make him happy. And he throws her away like garbage, even though she, she has two children and goes off to pursue his, his revenge uh, anyway. So, you know, that, you know that, that's, that, is, that is the attitude of somebody going into the relationship. That's not necessarily what a relationship should be. Time is ticking on. I'm gonna open, I want to open the floor to you all, but one more question very quickly for the four of you. We're told, we're always told not to indulge in extra textual speculation, but hell, it's a raining Tuesday evening, so let's go mad. Taking Tanika's whole setting, 1879 Calcutta and all the characters, what, if anything, could Nero have done differently over the course of her relationship with Tom to ensure a different outcome to the one we have? Tanika, let's start with you. You know, it's really interesting because when we did the first read-through, it was quite... Um, it, it was quite true to the Ibsen. And with our ears now, listening to Tom within the first six lines, you were screaming, for God's sakes, leave him. <laughs> and, and actually what we did was we paired it back and paired it back so that actually you feel that there is something there for her to stay. And in terms of, you know, what could she do that, that was differently? I mean, the obvious thing is that she should have just told him that she'd get given money. She'd had to borrow money. And then, but then we wouldn't have had the play. No, fair so. enough. <laughs> Rachel, what could she have done differently? I was exa exactly the same thing. She should have told him that she did, that rather than saving, because she goes, through, as you, you know, she goes through this whole construct to save his ego. She doesn't tell him that her father is, she's in this really situation of huge patriarchy. Her father is dying, her husband is ill simultaneously. So both of these men, to protect both of their um, egos on the case of Tom or, or his sort of, Spirit, in the case of her father, she, she goes through this whole machinations and pretends that she, you know, borrows money on the sly. Well, in a system in which women are not allowed in a system to in which, borrow yeah, and so on. Yeah, put yourself in danger. So there's, so she, what she doesn't do is tell her father the truth or tell her husband the truth, but that's because she's protecting both of them. So and should she have not protected them? Absolutely. She should have told the truth. Gaminda, what could she have done differently? Well, I think uh, instead of her, maybe Das could have acted differently. He could have told her some home truths. <laughs> and then, uh, okay. But, but he does try, doesn't he? Does, he does, he does try, but yeah. she doesn't really listen. Maybe he should have started a bit before Christmas Eve. Yeah. He <laughs> well, a bit late, yeah. didn't he? <laughs> Look, I think it's over to you. Um, uh, so do we have any... Yes, gentlemen, there. Oh, sorry, sorry. I'm getting so excited. We've got a microphone as we're recording for a potential podcast. Thank I probably you. have seen um, Ibsen's play, but frankly, I don't remember it. I'm sorry. But I'm curious as to, apart from being relocated from Norway to India, how different is this play from Ibsen's? And also, if Ibsen was here today, would he like it or not? Oh, good uh, question. Have you, have, you, have you seen it? No. Oh, right. Mm -hmm. Well, then I can't really... We're going to see it tonight. So. Yeah, we'll see it tonight and then we'll have that conversation. <laughs> I mean, because the thing is, is like, how different is it? it, it I think a lot of people have said... It's very true to the original, and others have said it feels like a new play. And so I can't really judge that. I think it's up to you guys. But would Ibsen, I like, would Ibsen like it? Of course he would. Of course he would. Yeah. Yeah. Bells, bells, of course yeah, he would. Absolutely. <laughs> Thank you very much. Gentlemen in the front row, sorry, Helen, you have to 
jog up and down. Uh, Gentlemen there, yeah. I'm just picking up on the same theme. As the play progressed, that was my point as well. He's a tax collector. He's well-educated. He would have known there was no money. So I think the, the play falls down on the assumption that the husband was totally unaware that he was being looked after by money that he hadn't got. Can I answer that? Yeah. Um, does, sorry, does everyone, has everyone heard the question? Sorry, the gentleman was saying, uh, Tom is a tax collector, he's fully au fait with money, he would have been aware that there was no money in the family and where did this money come from and so on. He would have known about the family financial situation. This was much discussed in rehearsal. Oh, okay. um, and I, I was very, very clear that I wanted to talk about that particular thing. I think in our rendition, Elliot and I worked on... He's, he doesn't want to ask the question because he's scared of the answer. And I think that's at the core of their marriage is a huge load of deceit. And so in our rendition of this, of Tanika's brilliant script, that's a choice. So we're trying to get Elliot, Elliot and I were trying to work on that, that he is actually, of course he knows, he suspects, he, he knows where, he doesn't ever ask the question, where did the money come from, Nehru? <laughs> and that's the problem. He doesn't ask because he doesn't. Year we, that we yeah, were in that year we were in Darjeeling, <laughs> where you, I didn't work. Where did it come from? But he doesn't ever ask the question, and that's the fundamental break, I think. And what's it. he telling himself? What What do we just think? La 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 la. It's just money just arrived, enough money for a year in the hill station. He just believes whatever is in his head, and that that's the problem in the marriage. They don't sit down and go, "How did Nuru? How did we manage that year? Yeah. Well done, you. Is what should have happened. <laughs> Thank yeah. you. <laughs> There's a, a lady up there. Oh, yeah. Oh, sorry. <laughs> yes. Hi. Um, kind of a complex question. So you talked a little bit about um, marriage not being like colonialism because of things like equality and things like that. Um, I'm just curious about how you or we define um, equality, particularly in light of this relationship that you all are describing. So if we could look at maybe that the couple in question, what would an equal relationship be? How could Tom and Nehru's relationship be equal? Yeah. She actually says it at the end of the play. She actually states how they could make a marriage of it, and that would be a spoiler alert. Yeah. <laughs> okay. So there's a whole speech that she makes at the end. Well, it's not a massive speech. It's only about... It's very succinct. It's very succinct, where she actually says how a, a proper marriage would work. And basically, it's about equality. Okay, so would that answer this question yes. also in light of the wider society? I think so, society? yeah. I mean, that's what's so beautiful. And again, that is Ibsen. That, that's absolutely Ibsen. That's from his... I mean, I don't think I changed anything of that. And so I think it's, for, for me, that was his, it was almost like that was his um, conclusion to his essay almost. You know, this is, how, this is what would make a good marriage. Can I just interject there? Because I think that that's perhaps where your version and Ibsen's version differ quite significantly because within the original, there's a sense that the line of difference is between men and women who occupy the same social space to a particular sense. So they're both part, you know, they're, they're, it's part of the bourgeoisie and it's about Norway at the time being a relatively advantaged sort of country and these dynamics are being played out in the context of a move towards egalitarianism that's general within the society. Whereas in the colonial context, and I think that to use colonialism as an analogy for anything else is deeply problematic and I just wouldn't do it. 
because colonialism, as I've talked about, is about elimination, it's about dispossession, it's about appropriation, it's about genocide. Marriage is not those things. Mm -hmm. And there's no way of making an equivalence between marriage and colonialism in that particular way. So the colonial context of your version, I think, creates an extra dimension of structural domination and oppression that it's difficult simply to resolve through a turn to equality because equality would require decolonization and the making of an equal What I think is society. interesting, I think we've, we've touched on this um, in this discussion. I think what Tanika's version gets so interesting, the as we said, in the original Norwegian society, it's a very small a segment of Norwegian society, but in your version, there's the British in India, there's Nero, who's of a slightly higher, sort of higher social class amongst the Indian standing, and then there's Das and so on. So it's a really interesting structure, isn't it? A sort well, of layered that, structure. Well, for me as well, I was being very... Um, I was looking at the caste system as well. Yes. So um, obviously it's slightly lost on, on people who don't really know much about names. But with Bengalis, for example, the, the character of Das is a lower caste. Uh, Niru is a, it, you know, she comes from a high caste. So it's sort of, it's also about the caste system. Um, so there's, there's that layered in there as well. But it's... Um, yeah, that's detail. <laughs> I, I, I can't wait to see this tonight. I mean, I, I, I really, I'm, I'm desperate to see it. And I think it's just so clever um, what you've done. And I know the Ibsen. Yeah. Right? I don't know your production yet. But it really does ring true and it feels yeah. familiar. There, yeah. there is a, this overriding thing in, in, in Indian culture, which is don't bring shame. Yeah. Don't bring shame. And that may be in yeah. don't embarrass your father. Don't show up your husband. Yeah. Just don't bring... And that tightrope that what so people many people... Say? What will people say? And this, this, this suffocation between Nora and Tom. Yeah, yeah. You know, with the Tom going, la, 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 la. It's the, I can't even hear it myself because mm. if I hear it, then someone else may hear it. And what will people say? Mm, mm. So I think it's just a brilliant, brilliant overlap. We've got a really question down here. Um, we've got two questions down here. So, uh, sorry. Uh, sorry, let's go to this gentleman here who's had his hand up for ages. Sorry, we've been neglecting you. Um, I think that, that, I mean, I just read the play probably because I'm teaching it now. And um, the first question is about the set, the new set, and how simplistic. And I do a lot of teaching about the symbolism of the set, how Isbin was really kind of uh, on the set and was very um, involved in how it was crafted. And I wanted to know a little bit about that process here. About how we the, came yeah, up with I've, the Yeah, because I've seen the play, and I can, I, I've seen what the set looks like. And the second thing is, the more I read the play, the more Isbin's version, the more I thought it was a commentary on the role of men. And I think it's, it's, that's a, an angle that I think sometimes gets lost out in discussion. I was wondering if some of you could talk about that and if that was something you considered um, with this. Because I think with Tom and how he responds and how he acts, particularly the end, and... <clears throat> And okay. it's really quite important. So the role of men. Okay, well, let, let's start quickly with the set. Rachel. Sure. I can answer that really swiftly. Um, originally, Ibsen's play is a Victorian melodrama, and that requires, you know, sideboards and chaise longs and antimacassars <laughs> and you name it, and I very much didn't want to do that. Aside from the fact it's set in India, I wanted a kind of a speed of purpose into the production. So we wanted, myself and the designer, Lily Arnold, wanted to make a space that could be uh, in the imagination of the audience anywhere we chose. It's like essentially based around an Indian courtyard um, so it, that sits in the middle of the home. But there's doors and there's windows and there's apertures in which they can make other scenes happen. So it was really, it's about two things, um, making it feel not Western, 
and making it possible for me to direct it swiftly. Set the role, the role of men. The ro so I wasn't quite sure what the question was. Are you saying that you felt that the... Yeah, that just, wasn't I, as I strong. Think I, think in this. I think that's um, sometimes we get kind of I think really wrapped up on Nora and how she's feeling and what's mm -hmm. going. But I think it really it also says a lot about the role of men within this society. The way men feel they have to how, behave. And how, and yeah, so I mean, I, in some way, does Tom actually have another like a way out of what's going on? You know, did you consider any of these things when you were crafting? Yeah, definitely. I mean, we were just talking about it earlier on that you know wanted to not just wanted to make sure that he wasn't a villain right from the beginning and uh, that that we had empathy with him in some way because otherwise it's very hard to watch characters on stage if they're villainous right from the beginning so that there had to be something about him that we loved as well and that we could see why she loved him uh, but the, pro the 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 problem you know of their marriage becomes bigger and bigger but actually I was very keen to make to make him as likable. As I said, in the first reading, he was so unlikable that I had to really kind of... And also, this is something that Rachel talks a lot with Elliot about who was playing him, which was, we've got two white men in that cast, and they're both actually quite likable. Um, and, you know, so that, that was... I, for me, that was really important. So, yeah. There's no, a lady here. Who's very, had... very quickly, because we gone. This lady's had her hand up for a long time, and it would be unfair to deprive her. Very quickly. Hello, I'm would. very excited to see it tonight. But I wonder if both Nora and Nero have privilege, and that they can look at having their children looked after. Um, and and that yeah. Question about <laughs> privilege. Nora Nero can afford to have can have her children looked after. Yeah. That. Yeah, well, yes. she has a nanny, doesn't she? Basically, <laughs> and that puts uh, Gamina in a certain place in the stru in the in the, the societal structure. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think that um, uh, certainly women of that of that stature, uh, sorry, of that economic background, would always have a nanny uh, or an ayah, as they called in India. Um, and in fact, in the other stories that we were talking about, was the fact that there were. There were low-class Indian women who looked after English English people's children called ayahs, and they often brought them over here to Britain. And in fact, a lot of them were dumped at Tilbury Docks when they weren't needed. Yes, exactly, exactly. <laughs> so it's that thing of like you know that there are always there's another underclass. I mean, that, that she there is a maid in the in the in this production who who I hope we feel for <laughs> actually. There's so much here that we could talk about, but I'm sure many of you are keen to watch the actual play now. I'm afraid we're going to have to wrap things up, so that all that remains for me to do is to thank you very much for coming for this first studio talk, and of course to thank our guests Rachel O'Riordan, Tanika Gupta, Gaminda Bambra and Anita Arnand. Don't forget that the next studio talk in connection with the forthcoming production of Solaris will be on Tuesday, October the 29th. Thank you very much.